I want you to go to the first page. Let's look at our little acronym here again because I want to keep us on track. We're going down the Roman road, right? That's what it's called, the Roman road. And in, in my opinion, of all the things written in all of history, there is, uh, there is little as profound as the book of Romans. It is just incredible. And um, it's called the, the Himalayas of Paul's writings. It's, it's just a profound book. Uh, I tell people all the one if you want all the time if you want to just be blown away just read Romans 1 just read Romans 1 and pay careful attention take notes because it's reading our culture's mail right now okay so let's look at it. everybody got it if you need a book raise your hand or forever hold your peace you don't need a book all right you see the acronym Romans now notice say with me under the R there's the cross the O is the ditch. The M is the road. The A is the plan. The N is the world. And the S is the kingdom. So you'll see that there's the cross, the ditch, the road, the plan, the world, the kingdom. And that really kind of sums up the 16 chapters of Romans. And tonight, we're going to finish the ditch. How many of you are ready to get out of the ditch? But it's, un- listen, it is so crucial that we understand the ditch. Because our culture tells us there is no ditch. What is the ditch? It is the message that all of mankind is in sin. There is not one human being except Jesus Christ himself that ever trod this planet and Adam before they fell who was sinless. Paul takes Romans 1 through 3 and he is going to make the argument and he's going to seal the case that we need a savior and we can't get ourselves out because we can't keep Moses' law. And if you think you can, try to go one week without breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And I promise you, you'll come away going, I can't do it. Exactly right. You can't. And so Moses, or rather Paul is going to show us that not only are we Gentiles sinners in desperate need of a savior, Because we can't save ourselves, but so are the Jews, even though they receive the word of God. So let's go now to part three in the message. Um, And we're going to take a walk down the Roman road, part three. Where does the Jew stand? This is heavy stuff. Let's see how we and they are in the ditch. In chapter two, we saw God's indictment on the hypocrite, right? And what's a hypocrite? That person who condemns in others what he himself practices. Don't get on to somebody else for being addicted to alcohol if you're addicted to something yourself, all right? So the wrong kind of judgment is when you point a finger and there's four pointing at you. You're, you're, you're saying to somebody, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be that way. Yeah, nah, nah, nah. And you get that, come down on them when you yourself are practicing somehow, some way, the same thing. Right kind of judgment is when you've got the log out of your own eye, you know you're living a clean life. So Jesus said, when you know that, then you can operate on a brother and uh, successfully remove the speck from his eye. But as long as there's a two by four of hypocrisy in your eye, you can't help nobody, no time. And I know that's bad English, but it's good preaching, right? So, We also saw Paul making the case that the Jew, or anyone else for that matter, would not be saved 
by being outwardly religious, as in the practice of circumcision. No, we've got to be changed within by a circumcision of the heart. Without inner transformation, the Jew and the Gentile both are lost. Now, folks, catch this. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Jew and Gentile covers the whole human race. So if you're a Jew, you're not a Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Most of us in here are Gentiles. I know we have a Jew or two in here. If you're Jewish, raise your hand. Uh, There's one up there. And over here, wow. See what I mean? Most of us are Gentiles. But guess what? To our Jewish friends, you're also in sin without a Savior. That's the message of chapter 3. Now, Paul is going to create an imaginary protester with an argument, all right? So in chapter 3, Paul defends his indictment of Jewish lostness against the imaginary protests of a Jewish opponent. So he's going to make up a person, sort of a straw man, and, and give him some arguments, and he's going to answer the arguments. No doubt he had encountered some of these very arguments from Jews during his ministry. There's no question about that. He did. So in verses 1 through 2, he deals with the question, what advantage has the Jew? What does the Jew have as an advantage over Gentiles? All right? He answers, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Well, what is it, Paul? Well, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And what was he talking about there? The Old Testament. The Mosaic Covenant. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, the whole Old Testament. By the time Paul was writing now, uh, there may be a couple of New Testament epistles written, maybe a gospel or two, but there's no New Testament, just the Old. But it was to the Jew that the Old Testament was given. They were the recipients of the revelations. Moses wrote down the first five books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets all wrote their books. David, the Psalms. Solomon, the Proverbs, you you go through them all, and you've got Jewish men writing the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So they had received the words of God. There's an advantage, he he says to the Jew. There's an advantage. And remember in chapter 2, Paul had informed them that being circumcised would have nothing to do with saving them. He said, quote, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. And guess what? Everybody broke the law. So circumcision was for nothing. It didn't save you because everybody broke the law. And verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. In other words, born a Jew. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one where, everybody? Inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. This is why Jesus said, you must be born from above. Born twice. You got to be born twice. All right? Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're saved. Born once, you're dead in your sins. Born twice, you're forgiven. Born once, you're going to hell. Born twice, you're going to heaven. Born once, you're a child of the devil. Born twice, you're a child of God we got to be born twice. And the only way to do that is to turn to Christ and let the Holy Spirit come to live inside of you, and that is the circumcision of the heart. Now, this statement, no doubt, shocked the Jews 
and beg the question, well, then what advantage is there if I'm a Jew? If you tell me I'm going to hell just like you, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And Paul answered, well, much in every way. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the very words of God, the entire Old Testament. And looking back again to chapter 2, Paul had spoken of those hardened and unrepentant Jews who were storing up wrath for themselves. And not just the Jews, but you and me. Any person out there that doesn't repent every day, you're making an investment into your sin account. And your sin account is storing up your wrath account. All right? So think about it. Uh, How you spend your life matters. And if you never come to Christ, never get saved, never born again, and your sins remain unforgiven, then every day you, you sin with your thoughts, your words, your actions, and your attitudes. You're going to sin. And you're storing up more wrath, more sins that you're going to answer for if you don't have the Savior standing next to you saying, He's mine, she's mine. They're forgiven. Amen? I don't know about you, but I want a savings account that is eternally righteous and good. I don't want a savings account that is going to multiply the wrath I'm going to experience on the day of judgment. I want everybody to say with me, a day of judgment is coming. Yeah, you won't hear that in many pulpits anymore. It's too bad because you should because people need to know there's a day of judgment coming as surely as we're sitting here. You can't stop it. It's coming. And the human race is racing towards it. All right? Now, so... He had described those who were proclaiming the law fervently to the Gentiles, but they were practicing it in a shoddy manner in front of them. So next page, clearly the Jews in Paul's crosshairs were being unfaithful towards the covenant God had made with them. They were breaking the Mosaic covenant. All right? Now, so the question Paul now tackles is, quote, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness. And then he says, not at all. Let God be true. I love this verse. Let God be true in every man a liar. Amen? And let God be true in every experience a liar. If, if, if a man tells me something the Word of God doesn't agree with, or if an experience tells me something the Word of God it doesn't agree with, both are liars, and God's Word is always true. All right? Now, um, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So anytime God judges, dear church, he's right. He's never wrong. He's right. Okay? He's never unfair. He's right. He, he, he's never unjust. He's right. And when the whole human race goes before him on the great white throne judgment day and They hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you, and their name is not found in the book of life. It's a just judgment. Because Abraham said to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It was a rhetorical question. What he's saying is the judge of the earth will always do right. right. Okay. The Jews wanted to know if the unfaithfulness of some Jews nullified or canceled out the faithfulness of God. And Paul says, no way. Let God be true and every man a liar. So God is true to his word and to his covenant. He will not judge me for someone else's sins. 
Paul had said in chapter 2. Aren't you all glad you're not going to be judged for someone else's sins? Can I drop a bomb on you here? Some of you are going to go, well, that's it for me. Pastor Jeff just lost my favor. But I'm going to say it anyway, based on this truth. I don't believe in generational curses. Well, I've always been taught there's generational curses. But doesn't a generational curse require that you are answering for someone else's sin? Absolutely. Didn't it say in Galatians that Jesus became a curse for us? Did it say it? I need to do a teaching on this. I can tell because not one person said amen when I said, I don't believe in generational curses. He said, well, I've got, I've got proof in my family. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. My granddad was an alcoholic and I was an alcoholic and I've only been delivered, you know, an amount of time or, or I'm still struggling with it because I know there's a curse on me. Okay, listen, he became a curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if I come to Jesus and he forgives me and I'm his and he's mine, the Bible tells me he cancels out the curses against me. Well, then how come I'm so drawn to drinking like they were? Because you watched them drink. You watched them numb their pain with it. You watched them turn to it. That's how it's a learned vice. Okay, that's free. I'm going to move on. That's not in my notes at all. I thought I'd throw that out because I've had so many people say to me, oh, I'm just, I'm just laboring under a generational curse. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's just terrible. I just feel like I've got to do these things. And I say, wait a minute. Let God be true and every experience a liar. He became a curse for me. Can we say that together? He became a curse for me. Do you believe that's true? If you do, give me a hearty amen. Okay, I will teach on generational curses sometime or preach on it on Sunday because I can tell I need to. All right. He whom the Son frees is free indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Get off it, Jeff. Come on, move on. All right. God is true to his word and covenant. He won't judge me for someone else's sins. Look at verse 2, or chapter 2 here in verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. For God does not show favoritism. Amen. Now, next the imaginary debater that Paul has created here to make his points begins questioning the justice of God. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, Paul admits. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, hang with me. I'm going to explain this verse. Paul's imaginary foe is literally arguing that his wickedness serves God by providing a contrasting background for God's righteousness. In other words, if I weren't sinning, how could God's righteousness stand out? All right? How did we know that we were sinners? 
when, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments. When he gave the Ten Commandments and we read what they said, we realized quickly it, it put our sin under a microscope. It amplified, it magnified our sin. Before, uh, sin was kind of uh, out there and, and uh, hard to nail down sometimes, and what's right and what's wrong, and I wish it was more clear, but when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses and he laid those things down and we saw God's law, then it put our sin under a microscope. Now I know what's wrong. Now I know how I sin. Now I know that I can't stop doing some of these things. It showed me beyond the shadow of a doubt that I was a sinner. You are a sinner. All right? And so these people are now, some of the arguments he had heard, it was a twisted, you talk about twisted thinking, stinking thinking. They were saying, well, okay, since my sin helps us to see God's righteousness contrasted so that we can better understand God's righteousness, then isn't my sin serving a good purpose? Oh, I love that. Let, let, me, let me tell you something. That is rationalization squared to the 10th power. I mean, I'm happy to sin if it helps others to see the righteousness of God. It, you know, it's holding, it's holding dark up to light. It's holding wrong up to, to right. And, and, and so I'm, I'm helping others to see the righteousness of God by me being so wicked. It's really serving a great purpose. It's a nutty argument. But he heard this. Paul heard this. We know he must have or he wouldn't have made the argument. So isn't it funny what we will do to justify sin? Oh, yeah, I go out on weekends and I get plastered because when I get plastered, then, then God's ability to forgive me is so much more magnified. I mean, it just shows the power of the blood that he can forgive me for party and hearty every weekend. So when I go to church on Sunday after I've been plastered Friday and Saturday night, it's so good to know that the grace of God is there, and, and, and it just shows the power of God to forgive my sin. So I'm going to keep right on sinning. Hallelujah, glory to God. I'm just telling you what's here in the Word. This, of course, is horribly twisted thinking. <laughs> yeah, Paul says, if this were true, God could not judge the world. For one could say the whole world was serving God by sinning. But now the ridiculous argument is even taken a step further. You thought they were done, but they weren't done. Here comes verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Because my falsehood is only enhancing his truthfulness. So why in the world would God condemn me since my falsehood is serving a good purpose? In other words, the Jews' unrighteousness actually enhances God's forgiveness, and therefore it is commendable to sin. All right. God ought not find fault with the Jew for his sin because that sin helps magnify the character of God. And once again, Paul responds with a resounding, God forbid. God is both just and righteous, something woven in the very fabric of his word. Since that is so, it's obviously a false assumption that man's sin somehow enhances God's righteousness. You don't need to sin to enhance God's righteousness. God's righteous no matter what we do or don't do, right? 
Now, what made all this particularly bad was that Paul's enemies were spreading the rumor that this is what Paul was actually preaching. Go ahead and sin because you're only enhancing God's righteousness. People were saying that he was preaching this. It was a nasty rumor. That he encouraged sinning as a means of enhancing God's glory. And then he says in verse 8, as we are being slanderously, uh, slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. That's what people were saying he was preaching. Go do evil that good may result. I'll tell you something. No good comes out of evil. Evil hatches evil. Bad hatches bad. If you sow one bad seed, you're going to reap ten bad seeds. What you sow, you know, you reap way more than you sow, no matter what it is, good or bad. So it's a crazy thing that he was being accused of. But, but, I, but he, he adds some, some words, uh, four words at the end of verse 8, that if I was these people slandering him, I would be afraid. He said, their condemnation is deserved. Those who are saying this about me and saying that I preach this, their condemnation, what's, what, what is coming to them is deserved. Okay, so Paul has concluded his case against the Jew. God pays no attention to the Jewish claim to be exempt from judgment on the grounds that he's a Jew. You're not exempt from judgment, Jew or Gentile. Religion in itself, and nobody was more religious than the Jew, and I mean nobody, cannot exempt anyone from the judgment of God. Religion can't save you. And there's another thing that can't save you. I hear this a lot. I hear it more and more. I was watching somebody get interviewed. I think it was on a YouTube. And this, this guy said to this, this, this lady, said, uh, are you a Christian? Oh, I'm very spiritual. That's not what I asked you. I said, are you a Christian? She said, oh, I'm very spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. Well, what does that mean? You're spiritual. Does that mean you dance with angels? Does that mean you see demons everywhere? Does that mean that you go to heaven every other day? Does that mean, what does it mean you're spiritual? See, that's a buzzword for new age. If you say, I'm spiritual, you're saying, I'm not a Christian. I'm full of new age gobbledygook, all right, new age beliefs, but I'm not a Christian if I'm spiritual. Well, in, in Paul's day, it was not, I'm spiritual. It was, I'm religious. Oh, I'm religious. Why are you a Christian? Well, I'm very religious. Well, what does that mean? Oh, I do good things for people. I give to the poor. You know, I, uh, I, um. You know, I'm a very good person. I've never had a traffic. T- I take care of my neighbors. I, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm religious. I'm 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 involve myself in rituals. I, you know, I go to the church every every once in a while and partake of communion. Uh, I involve myself in 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 uh, different religious uh, undertakings, and so so I'm religious. But but what I want to know is, no, wait a minute. Not are you religious, but are you born again? Have you been saved? Well, I don't know about that. I just know I'm religious. But that means I'm a good person. It also means I am religious. I'm, I am saved by my own good works. That's what religion means. I, I'm right with God based on my performance. Religion is all about performance. You know, I'm jumping through the right hoops. I'm crossing the T's and dotting the I's. I, I'm, I'm a religious, conscientious, uh, devout person. But that's not the question. 
are you a Christian? Because you can be religious, and Paul just showed us. You can be religious and be going straight to hell. Because the Jews had the biggest claim on religion. Nobody was more religious than them. Nobody involved in more ritual. Nobody, nobody, nobody more steeped in good works. But Paul says to them, you're lost. And religion won't save you. Your own good works can't save you. That's the whole message of Romans 1 through 3. You're lost. You're in a ditch. You can't get yourself out of the ditch. You will never get yourself out of the ditch. Give you, give you a million years, you're never climbing out of the ditch. Somebody's going to have to come into that ditch and pull you out. And his name is Jesus. Right? Amen. This is good stuff. I love the Word of God. Isn't it rich? This is T-bone steak. It's only going to get better. All right. So Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious alike, they all stand before God exposed to his wrath on the ground that they are sinners. So let's look at the guilt of all humanity. Next, Paul is going to, take, uh, is going to place all of mankind under the indictment of guilt before God. Now, notice, church, he's making a case. He can't continue with what he wants to say about grace and salvation by faith until he makes the irrefutable case that we're all in the ditch of sin and can't get out, all of us, all of us. How many of you will admit, before I knew Jesus, I was a sinner and a good one, right? All right, so here's how he's going to do it. He's going to show us uh, the guilt of all mankind in three phases, the Catholicity of sin. Catholic means universal. So when you say the Catholic church, it means the universal church although it's not the universal church. The Catholic church is the Catholic church, but Catholic means universal. And then he's going to show us the criminality of sin. And then he's going to show us our own culpability in sin. So let's finish out the ditch. Jesus likened us instead to lost sheep. Why did he call us a sheep? Because a sheep is an animal which is not smart, swift, nor strong, and has no power or inclination to seek its shepherd once it has strayed. That's a sheep. So when Jesus said, you're my sheep, he was not being complimentary. (laughs) Right? Somebody might say, well then, how do you explain that pagan lands are filled with temples and worshipers when they can't find anything on their own? Well, the Bible gives the answer. The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. So when you see religious people people in cults and occult activity, you say, well, see, they have a spiritual sense. No, they're sacrificing to demons. They're not finding the real God, okay? Jesus said, or Paul has already told us in chapter 1, rather, that the Gentile world has turned its back on God in order to pursue idolatry. That's chapter 1. And behind this world's false beliefs is the God of this world, and the God of this world is the devil, And that's why you'll find people, you can talk to them about Jesus all year long, but there is something, there's a glaze over their eyes, there's a veil over their heart, and you know what I'm talking about, if you've ever witnessed to people very long, some are ready and they get saved, but some you can talk till you're blue, but there is a veil over their eye, there's a veil over their heart, because the God of this world, the devil, has blinded them spiritually. 
Jesus said that religion apart from regeneration is totally vain. No man can come to me, said Jesus, except the Father draw him. And man is unrepentant in his relationship to God. Look what it says. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you catch those words? All, together, no one, not even one. No one is repentant without the conviction of the Holy Spirit touching them. That's why Jesus said in John, 15, John 14, 15, and 16, when the Spirit of God comes, He will do what to the world? He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. See, you know how you got saved? The Holy Ghost convicted you. If He hadn't convicted you, you wouldn't be saved tonight. Never would have happened because you would have been in darkness. God of this world blinding your eyes. It took the Holy Spirit convicting you and me. And we went, oh my Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. You didn't come up with that. The Holy Ghost came up to you and told you that. Okay? This passage rips away all of man's imagined goodness. We've all walked away from God prior to conversion. God sums up our godless lives with the word unprofitable. So in God's eyes, man is unrighteous, unrighteous, unreasonable, unresponsive, and unrepentant. Everybody say, I feel great now. Okay? But here's the truth of man. Okay? Here's the truth of man. That's why I never trust a preacher that does nothing but build, uh, build up your ego. You got it going on, girl. You, you, you know, you're a great big bundle of potentiality and you know, you're going to go take the world and your success waiting to happen and you're this and you're that. I'm very wary of anybody that puffs me up. Now, encourage me all day long, but don't puff me up in a fleshly way because I'm unrighteous by nature, unreasonable, unresponsive, and I'm unrepentant without the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, next there is the criminality of sin. This doesn't sound good right off the bat, does it? Criminal. Bible teacher Lewis Chafer once said, it may be a secret sin on earth, but it is open scandal in heaven. In other words, what man considers common, God considers criminal. Whew. Man is hopelessly criminal in his sin. What did Jesus say? That which is applauded by men is an abomination to God. That's why I don't watch the Oscars anymore. All of these self-patch-on-the-back, congratulatory, award-winning things where they were walking down the red carpet and dripping with arrogance and aren't I incredible and I'm a step above you. You can't, I would rather, I need to be careful here. I'd rather gargle with razor blades than watch that stuff. How's that? How's that for a visual? <laughs> I'm feeling salty tonight, can you tell? All right. Now, so here's the deal. Man is hopelessly criminal in his sin. Paul shows this first by his words, what they say. He says, you want to know how, how criminal man is, how sinful he is? Look at what he says. Then by his feet, look at where he goes. First, let's look at his speech. Look at how man's speech is described, everybody. Their throats are open graves. You ever thought of your throat as a grave? But that's what comes out of our mouth. What comes out of our mouth, in other words? 
kills people. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Throat, tongue, lips, mouth. Junk comes out. Murder comes out. Hatred comes out. Bitterness comes out. Poison comes out. Slander comes out. Criticism comes out. Tearing people down comes out. Damaging words come out. Is this not true? And you can go all the way down to the first grade and find this going on. I remember being torn to pieces on the playground by my peers in second grade, third grade, because they were just nasty with their tongues. And so was I. A little bitty kid still fits this description because we're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We got to know the truth about the human condition. This is why we need a savior. Human speech stinks like a corpse in a grave. It's full of lies. It is venomous like a poisonous snake. Words are so important that Jesus warned that every idle word men speak, they were gonna, they're going to give an account for it on the day of judgment. Now, his feet, his ways. Look what it says in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Man is by nature murderous. Swift to shed blood. Not slow to kill, quick to kill. The first recorded sin after the fall was murder. J. Edgar Hoover once observed there is a murder every 40 minutes in the United States, and I guarantee you it's more than that now. From the time I started, we started this service to when we close, a few people will have been murdered in the United States. At least a few. Man's wicked ways lead to misery, do they not? Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Look at the human condition. Think of you before you were saved. Did your ways not bring some ruin and some misery? Mine did. Look around you. Statistics show that drug abuse and drug addiction cost Americans over $484 billion annually. Wow. We live in an addicted culture. Let me tell you something. If you're not addicted to anything but Jesus tonight, you are the exception. And not the rule. I'm just telling you the truth. It's true. If you really have no addictions but Jesus, and that's a good one, you're the exception in this world. Our country, our nation is hooked because life without God leads to misery. It leaves a gaping, vacuous hole in the soul that man desperately tries to fill with hopeless counterfeits, drugs, alcohol, sex, you name it. Counterfeits that don't work, don't satisfy. Paul says, in all their searching, quote, the way of peace, they still have not discovered or known. That's why God sent the Prince of Peace over 2,000 years ago, and yet even so, most reject him. There is no fear of God, Paul says Paul, before their eyes. There's no fear of God in most of the world. No fear of God in our culture, I guarantee you. Where's the fear of God gone in America? Even in 30 years ago, there was more residue of the fear of God than there is now. Now there's not any. We are officially, dear church, a pagan culture. We're a pagan culture. We're not a Christian culture anymore. Uh, hello? No, we're, we're pagan, head to toe.
In light of the Catholicity or universal nature of sin and the criminality of sin, Paul concludes his indictment of mankind by hammering home man's culpability or personal blame for his condition. We are culpable by our sinful actions. He writes in verses 19 to 20, uh, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the, how much? The whole world held accountable. Those under the law are the Jews. Those without the law are the Gentiles. But all of them are under God's judgment. Therefore, he says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, as I was saying a moment ago. Here's a fact. The law was not given for us to perfectly obey. That's not why it was given. We can't obey it. It was given to magnify our awareness of the sinfulness of our sin. It was given that we might say, I'm hopeless. I can't keep it. I'm undone. What shall I do? And the answer is, say it with me, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because I can't pick it up. I like this illustration. Um, let's say you're in a gym and you've got a barbell down here. It has five weights on each side. Uh, ten weights in all. Those are the Ten Commandments. God gives those Ten Commandments. We, we're in the gym of life. Moses comes down from the mountain with the commandments uh, on stone. He says, here you go. Here's God's law. Now live it. Here's his rule of righteousness. Go for it. And we tried picking up that barbell and hoisting it over our head and doing reps. And we couldn't do it. Even better, you're on a bench press and you're laying down and I hand you a barbell with 10 weights on it. And it's impossibly heavy. And it drops onto my chest and it starts to kill me. I can't breathe. I'm almost asphyxiated. And I try pushing it up, but I can't. And if, and if I don't get help, it's going to kill me. And right when I think I'm about to faint and die, a spotter comes along. And what's a spotter? A spotter is somebody that comes up behind you when you're on that bench press and grabs the weight and pulls it up for you. And the spotter was Jesus. And here's what happened. Watch this. Jesus was born, lived a sinless, not sinful life. And he saw those commandments. And the Bible says, he, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So what did he do? He picked up that barbell. He picked up those weights. And he started doing this. I got it. I got it. I got it. No big deal. All right? And then he said, now that I lived it, if you put your faith in me, I'm going to impute to you what I just did, but you couldn't do. You're going to be declared righteous. God's going to consider that you picked it up and did this because Jesus did it for you. And because he did it for you, uh, listen, oh, I'm getting worked up. I'm about to preach. I feel like it's Sunday morning. But watch this now. What does the song say? He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I couldn't pick it up. I couldn't. Those 10 commandments, 
But Jesus did pick it up. And because he picked it up, now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. And so because he picked it up, it's imputed to you and me. And guess what? As far as God's concerned, we picked it up and we lived it because it's imputed righteousness. And that means reckoned to your account. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. See, your, your, your spiritual account was full of sin, full of judgment, full of a mess. And there were warrants out for your arrest in the spiritual world. And you were going to face the greatest judge of all history, God himself. And you were in deep trouble, and so was I. But then Jesus lived that perfect life. And when you put your faith in him, and only if you put your faith in him, your sins are wiped away. And God says, now I reckon to your account that you picked it up and didn't drop it and lived it because he lived it for you. Amen? Let's stand. Oh, wait a minute. I have time. Where's Brendan? I think I have time to take a couple of questions. How many of you would like to ask a question? You see how bold I am here? I'm going to real quick because we ended a little about five minutes before usual. So anybody have a question for me? A question from what you heard tonight, a Bible question. They're afraid to ask. Don't ask me what I think about the cowboys or anything like that. Just a Bible question. Anybody? One way back there. Amen. We'll just take a couple. I love taking questions. I think. We'll see what this is. I disagree with you, Pastor Jeff. Yes. Uh, you said we're Gentiles, correct? Yes. If we're circumcised of the heart and Jews inwardly, are we Jews? Are we Gentiles? Or are we Jews we, we in, have been, sense, in one sense? Or are we Gentiles in another sense? Or We are all, listen, at the cross, the cross is the great equalizer. Uh, there's not Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave, or free at the cross. And um, also the Bible talks in Romans, we'll see this later on in our uh, series through this, that we have been grafted into the vine. We have been grafted into the covenants and, and the vine that were given to the Jewish people originally. And now we have been grafted in. And Paul says, don't get heady about that because you're grafted in by grace, not your own good works, not because you're pretty or handsome, right? But you're grafted in by grace. So uh, we're all, there's a oneness. We're all one in Jesus. Um, but we're also, by the grace of God, grafted in to that Jewish vine, uh, the covenants that God gave to them. All right? Anybody else? Oh, way over here. They're going to make you work, Brandon. There we go. Good thing you got your PF Flyer tennis shoes on tonight. <laughs> Hi, Pastor Jeff. Hi. Um, my cousin was asking me about... Um, a book of Jasher, and that's something that I should be looking into. But I told her if it wasn't, if, if God didn't give it to us in the Bible, I don't think that that's something that we be, we should be looking off yeah. into. I think the book of Jasher is in the Apocrypha. Now, uh, the Apocrypha, you will note, it's not in your Bible, more than likely. The Apocrypha is in Catholic Bibles, 
um, they have accepted it. But what's the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha was written in what we call the intertestamental period. That means between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years went by. Okay, when Malachi gave his final prophecy, think about this, everybody. God was silent for four centuries. Now, during that time, you had all kinds of things going on. Uh, The book of Enoch was written during that time, which is not in the Apocrypha, which is also false. But the Apocrypha was compiled during the time between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, The various church councils that met um, second century, third century, after Jesus uh, rose from the dead and went back to heaven, um, all decided, decreed that the Apocrypha was not inspired. So the Apocrypha was not included. This would be like the Maccabees, book of Maccabees is in the Apocrypha. Um, you'd have to just go look it up. It, I think it's like 15, 17 books. I'm not sure. Uh, but I do know that I think uh, the one you named is, is in the Apocrypha. And for instance, the Maccabees has value if you want some good history, because the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha will tell you about um, the Maccabean revolt and what really happened uh, in that battle between the Jews and Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's a lot of church history. But anyway, so there's some value to the Maccabees, but, but the Apocrypha books, the Apocryphal books are not considered the inspired word of God. So if you want to read them for entertainment, read them, but you'll, you'll find they're full of gobbledygook, crazy, nutty, wacko stuff. And you can tell pretty quick that it's not your Bible. It's not the word of God. All right. Does that help? All right. Anyone else? Got another one. Boy, they're working you. Uh, Good thing, like I said, you got those PF flyers on. Okay, here we go. Are y'all okay with these questions? Because we won't take too much longer. We got, okay, here we go. Hi. Hi. Um, so when I found, like, whenever I'm sharing my faith, especially for, like, a young adult, a lot of people in my age say that they're Christian, and, mm-hmm. like, I'm, so whenever they ask me if I'm Christian, they think it's the same thing, but it's hard for me to show them, look, I believe in the Bible, but um, whenever they ask me for, like, good teachers and good um, references, like, I have to remind them that I'm technically, like, Reformed Christian versus, like, you know, Catholicism or, like, other different branches of Christianity that, like, prosperity gospel and, like, other stuff like that. So how do you, I guess, identify when somebody asks you if you're a Christian? Because I've told people that I'm Christian, but then they pull up prosperity gospel, and I'm like, that's really not Christianity. Okay, well, I just take them to the Word. Because, listen, anytime you're talking to people about the faith, your authority is the Word. Remember Jesus, when he was confronted with the devil in the wilderness, He didn't say, well, here's what I think, even though he could have, but he didn't. What did he say? It is written. It is written. It is written. So I will take them to what the Bible says evidences a genuine Christian. Like I I talked about it some Sunday. Um, You know, you can say, oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, and I'm a Christian, and I've got a Chevy, and I love my mom, and I love apple pie, right? So So everybody's a Christian. But... I will take them to the scriptures and say, here's how 
I know I'm a Christian. Because like First John, if you want to see some good ways to tell somebody that you're a Christian, First John was written so that we would know whether or not we are a Christian. That's why First John was written. By this we know, that, that was a common phrase of John's, by this we know if we live out the word, if we pattern our lives after him, if we love the brethren, if we forgive one another, uh, by this we know that we are a child of God. So I would start with the scriptures and just show them the evidences because that pulls you out of all the debate of these different subgroups of Christians and just take them right to the raw word. What does it say? Evidences a Christian. Okay? That's what I would do. All right? Right over here. If a child dies before the accountability, will he have, are there going to be a time when he'll have a, a chance to accept the Lord? Or does that give him a free pass to heaven? If they die before the age of accountability, which is relative, because different children have different intellectual abilities, capacities, and abilities to understand spiritual things. So it's a, it's a relative thing. Only God knows what the age is. But we do know that it's real because remember when David lost his son, a little baby, uh, it was their first child, he and Bathsheba's first child, and the child was judged because it was conceived in sin, which is not predictive. It's not saying that if you sin and a child is conceived in your sin, God's going to kill it. It's not predictive, uh, and it's not prescriptive. It's just uh, telling us something that happened. Now, when the child died, David's servants came to him and said, well, man, before the child died, you were fasting, you wouldn't eat, you looked terrible, you're on the ground. Um, we, we thought you were going to maybe hurt yourself. But now that the baby has died, you're, you've combed your hair, you're, you're eating, you're saying, let's go on. Well, what's up with this? And David said, I can't go, I can't bring him down to me, but I will go to him one day. Now, that's a verse about the age of accountability because David gave us a spiritual truth. That child can't respond to, to God. That child can't even talk yet. So the minute that child died, that child went into the presence of the Lord. Okay? Because David said, I can't bring him back, but I'll go to him. And I believe that's true of all children who are not to the point where they can make up their own minds about Christ. Okay? And only God knows when that is. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, Pastor Jeff, I, I don't want to take more time, but uh, you mentioned at the beginning that we're getting, there is going to be a day of judgment and it's coming more mm-hmm. rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting a sense that God's also moving more rapidly. Is that biblical or is that my Pollyanna way to deal with how rapidly we're going in the wrong direction? <laughs> hey, the older I get, the faster it's going for me. I, I can tell you that. It's like, are you kidding me? It's already, weren't we just here? You know, even tonight, it seems like, weren't we just here? But um, anyway, the Bible does say in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end day tribulation period. And he says, if those, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So there is something there in Jesus' words that seems to intimate that God can cut short 
history to save the souls and lives of men and women. So, you know, I don't know if that's a a full answer to that or not, but I, I have always found that an interesting statement. If those days were not shortened, so clearly they're going to be shortened. Now, what that means, I don't know. But I, I think that might at least be chasing down the trail of what you're thinking about. All right, I'm going to take one more. Is there another one? Okay. Oh, I got to take two. I, I, I'm sorry. It's only 8.15. We're all alive. Your roast isn't going to burn. Go ahead. Um, how do you rebuttal whenever they bring up the the verse about hypocrisy, about the log in your eye and the splinter mm-hmm. in theirs? How do you rebuttal that when you know that you are changed and you no longer have that log in their eye and they're obviously living or bringing up the past? Okay, the Bible talks about um, being uh, content with a placid conscience. Okay? In other words, when we're right with God, our conscience tells us so because we have peace, right? We have peace with God. And uh, so if, if between you and him vertically, there's no conviction, you know, you know that God has not been dealing with you about something that you have stubbornly refused to do, because then you're dealing with a log in your own eye. But if you know that all is well with you and him, then let them, there, there's a saying on a castle wall in England that I've always liked. And the saying goes like this, they say, what do they say? Let them say. All right? They say, what do they say? Let them say. And so if I know I'm good with God, water off a duck's back. Okay? One more right back here. I've got a question. Did you all, like, coordinate before you showed up? That's fabulous. (laughs) Now, there's a deep Bible question. Yeah, just to follow up with the age of accountability, um, what about in the New Testament where it says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, um, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified to, uh, by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, uh, but now they are holy. In other words, sanctification and, uh, you know, you've got an umbrella on your family yeah. as Christians, but how about yeah. the unbeliever? Do they have the same age of accountability? It doesn't seem to say that here. Okay, that's not teaching. Age of accountability, but, you know, is it all-inclusive, you know? Okay, what Paul is saying there, he's not talking trickle-down sanctification. He's not saying, because remember earlier we taught, I don't answer for someone else's sins. Um, They're going to answer for their own, and I'm going to answer for mine. But it's the same thing uh, as your walk with God. Uh, There's no... uh, um, nobody inherits Christianity. You don't get, because your grandma was a Christian, it trickled down to you. Now, he's talking about a, a housing unit, a home unit, a family unit. And one of the parents is saved. So what does that mean, that the children are sanctified? I believe what it's saying is, because you have one parent that is saved, then you have a Christian influence in the home. At least from one, you have a Christian influence in the home. And that's going to work itself out in the way rules are laid down, uh, prayers are going to go up for the children. It's not saying that that one Christian parent causes the kids to be saved by virtue of being their kids. It's saying there is a sanctifying effect anytime at least one of the parents is saved. 
because you're going to have prayer going up. You're going to have, like I said, some rules in the house that are going to be Judeo-Christian centric. Um, there's going to be some Bible reading. So those kids are going to come under an influence just like they come under the influence of somebody wicked. So I think, I think it means that we have to be careful with that because people will say, well, my kids are good because I'm good with God. But that's not what it's saying. They got to get saved too. But if I've got a Christian mom or, listen, I had a Christian grandmother. That's the only Christian in my whole lineage, either direction. But she, my dad told me, she used to put me on her lap. I didn't know this till way later after I was saved. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, my mom, your grandmother, she loved you. You were her little Jeffy. I'm only going to tell you guys that, no one else. And she used to get you on, on her knee with her Bible and, and, and bounce you up and down on her knee and talk to you about the Bible. And there's no question in my mind because of the prayers of my grandmother, I got saved. I wasn't saved because she was my grandmother, but I eventually got saved because it had a sanctifying influence on me. Okay? All right, let's stand up together. And that's fun, isn't it, those questions? Amen. All right, let's lift our hands and thank God. Lord, we just thank you right now for your blessing on the house of God. We thank you, Lord, for being with us. Thank you for this wonderful book of Romans. And thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to get us out of the ditch. Can we just say, thank you, Lord, that I'm out of the ditch? Can we just say it, thank you, Lord, I'm out of the ditch? Thank you that I'm out of the ditch. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We love you in Jesus.